0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. This week, we begin airing Dr. Newfeld's popular series entitled, The Power of Christ in a Pagan World. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, and join Dr. John Newfeld in this introduction to the book, Corinth or Canada?
1: I think... We can read the New Testament with a greater understanding of the background than our parents' and grandparents' generation. Now, the reason I say that is not just because of the amazing resources that we have today, and yes, we do have them, but I think our culture is looking more and more like the culture in which the New Testament church was birthed. I want to introduce you to a four-week series I've entitled The Power of Christ in a Pagan World. Now, in this study of the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, I want to introduce you to a church which tried to share a gospel in a world that had no idea of the gospel. And when that world thought about the gospel, most likely they had the wrong idea as to what it was all about. I'm calling today's message Corinth or Canada, And you'll wonder why I call it that, because as I try to explain the culture of the people of Corinth, you will no doubt wonder what the two cultures really have in common with each other at all. We're separated by 2,000 years. We have a different language, a very different history, and a very different culture. But I hope you'll see that there are certain overlaps, certain ways of seeing and living that make Corinth seem eerily similar to some of the features in our culture. And I hope you won't find that I'm trying too hard as I attempt to make application from that culture to ours. So let me start by mentioning some of the differences between Corinth and Canada. Corinth was one city, and ours is a country that covers an impressive landmass from about six large cities, which house over half of us Canadians, to numerous small farming and mining and fishing communities. We also have a great portion of our country's landmass made of great Arctic wilderness with the smallest of communities in them. See, what holds us together and what held the city of Corinth together is surely a very different dynamic. In this sense, there are no similarities at all. You know a second difference is the presence of Rome which dominated ancient Corinth. You know Canada was once self-governing British colony dominated by both British and French settlements. I think because we negotiated with the British until they couldn't stand us anymore, we became an independent state. At least that's my take of our history. You know even though we continue to be a part of the British Commonwealth, we have evolved to be quite different from England. Corinth, on the other hand, as we will see, was also governed by a foreign power, but the Corinthians overtly tried to be like Rome in many ways. I think Canadians don't try to be like the British, at least not now anyway, not at this period in our history. We have truly and completely gained our independence in a way that the Corinthians never did. Well, finally, Canada is a nation that once had the gospel widely preached at its beginning and to a large degree has moved from its Judeo-Christian heritage, whereas ancient Corinth was mostly ignorant of the God of Israel. While it is true that they had a sizable Jewish community in the city, this community never formed the center of Corinthian life. So, Corinth and Canada, well, hardly, two very different worlds, and yet there is something here that sounds remarkably familiar. But let me not get ahead of myself. I want to begin by giving a picture of ancient Corinth and of a letter written by the great apostle Paul to a struggling group of Christians who met for worship in that ancient city. Well, what do we know of that city? What kind of city was it? What was it like to live there 2,000 years ago? The city of Corinth was located in what is now the nation of Greece. It was not far from the famous city of Athens. The city itself lay near a narrow isthmus and contained a very important harbor for ships. And during the second century BC, Corinth joined a number of other independent Greek cities to fight against the domination of Rome, but in 146 BC, the Roman general Mummius defeated the city and utterly burned it to the ground. The city was left a ruin for over 100 years until Julius Caesar decided to found a colony there because of its potential for an important harbor and shipping, and he colonized it with people who, for the most part, came from a class called the freedmen. I'll explain that in a bit. The city was rebuilt, but when it was, it no longer looked like a Greek city. It had become Roman in so many ways. At the time of the writing of Paul's letter to the Corinthian Christians, the city was significantly Roman in character. The architecture on all the buildings looked Roman, the laws and the structure of the city politics was Roman, and in fact, a good portion of the population was Roman. But the population was also multicultural. In fact, Corinth drew people from all over the world. It was in its time the biggest city in Greece, larger and more influential even than Athens. Now, let's get a picture of where this city was located. It was right at the beginning of a narrow isthmus, or a narrow neck of land, that led to a passageway by the sea from one side of Greece to the other. Now, sea travel around the tip of Greece was so dangerous in the ancient world that the mariners had a saying. The saying was, a sailor never makes a journey around Malia, which is the tip of Greece, until he first writes his will. Because it was so dangerous, most captains chose to sail up to Corinth at the beginning of that narrow isthmus. Small ships could make it through by having ropes attached to them and then being pulled along the land on both sides through a narrow stretch of ocean that began in Corinth. But bigger ships couldn't make it, and this is what was done. They would literally drag these ships out of the water onto skids or huge mass of rollers and drag them from land, starting at Corinth, to the other side of Greece and then put them back into the water. That may sound tiresome to us, but that was the safest way to travel. Now today, there's a canal there that took almost 1,800 years to dig, and that in itself is an amazing story. But because sailors and ship captains and traders and everyone else had to get out of their ships at Corinth, Corinth became a boom town, kind of like the gold rush days of San Francisco. Money was just flowing everywhere, and people were flocking to the city. And out of this, Corinth became a manufacturing city. For instance, world-famous Corinthian bronze, which looked just like gold, was manufactured there. Lots of other products were as well. But that's not all. Corinth was filled with entertainment. I mean, you name it, and Corinth had it. They had a very large theater for plays and public lectures and musical concerts. Corinth was the first city in Greece to have Roman gladiators fighting there in their own arena. They also hosted what was called the Isthmian Games, held every two years, and were second in the ancient world only to the Olympic Games. And in Corinth, it was not only the men who ran in races like in the Olympic Games, but the women did as well. In fact, women also participated in war chariot races and sometimes even beat the men. And so Corinth became a place of liberated women operating on the same social status as men. But for our purposes, let's ask what the spiritual climate was like in Corinth. I suppose if you had gone to Corinth, you probably would have noticed the temples first. You would have seen temples to at least 19 different gods and goddesses, and this is not including all the buildings that held services for mystery religions. But most impressive of all of them was the temple of Aphrodite. She was a Greek goddess whose Roman name was the goddess Venus. She was thought of as the ancestor of Julius Caesar, so you can see the importance of that temple in that city. Now here's where it gets a little sketchy. It's hard to know if the description I'm giving happened during Paul's time or before, but it may well have been during his time. The temple of Aphrodite once housed over 1,000 sacred temple prostitutes, and every single day they would come out of the temple with quite a spectacle, circle through the city, and then return back to the temple. On the bottom of their sandals as they walked were written these words, follow me. And of course, many men and women did. It was considered to be a spiritual experience to have sex with a temple prostitute in the temple of Aphrodite. But as I have said, this was only one temple of many in the city. There was a temple that housed the cult of the emperor worship. After the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC, he was deified and worshipped as a god. And then there was a temple to Poseidon, the god of the sea and of earthquakes, and the Romans called this god Neptune. And then there were numerous gods and goddesses that came from the east, and all manner of pageants and festivals throughout the year celebrated the various deities all worshipped in that city. In fact, the whole city celebrated its various gods and goddesses. The Corinthians were extremely proud of their religious diversity. Indeed, all the meat markets sold meat which had been sacrificed to the various gods and goddesses. The idea being that every meal could be sacred, a spiritual experience, and that everyone should experience as many of these various forms of spirituality as was possible. But because of all of this, and because of the centrality of the Temple of Aphrodite, Corinth had a reputation of being the most permissive sexual society in the ancient world. It was like Amsterdam is today. In fact, it was slang in the ancient world. To Corinthianize someone was to make them a prostitute, and if you called someone a Corinthian girl, you meant she was easy. And when we come back, I'm gonna make some applications to our own culture. There are some overlaps between that world and ours.
0: At first glance, it might seem that there's not much in common between Canada and the ancient city of Corinth. This introduction has not only given us a brief but rich history of this important city and its culture, But also open our minds to seeing the similarities that exist when comparing our world to theirs. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will unpack seven characteristics of Corinth and how these apply to us in the church today. Have you been feeling tired, beaten down, and alone? If there's anything that the Bible tells us, it's that prayer is a powerful tool for the follower of Jesus. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is dedicating November to pray specifically for you. If you receive our monthly ministry letter, there's a prayer note inside. You can return to our office and a team member will join you in prayer. Or if you'd rather, you can visit backtothebible.ca prayer and send your prayer request on a special confidential prayer page. Either way, we're praying for you this month. Prayer is critical to the ministry, so we want to share our prayer request with you as well. Together in prayer, God will do great things. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca prayer to let us know how we can partner with you in prayer this month.
1: one more thing about Corinth. As I mentioned before, the city was filled with a class of people called freedmen. These were former slaves who had gained their freedom, and they came to Corinth in droves because the economy of Corinth allowed rapid wealth and a rapid rise in social status. Sailors, entrepreneurs, priests and priestesses, entertainers and athletes all made their way to Corinth, and the city was definitely on the map. So how can I sum this up? I would say that seven things characterized Corinth. One, it was dominated by the culture of Rome. Two, it was driven by a vibrant economy. Three, it was made exciting with arts, sports, and entertainment. Four, it was expanded by multi-religious experience. Five, it was lacking a moral center. Six, it was growing through the lure of advancement. And seven, it was somewhat hostile yet tolerant of monotheism, which would have sounded restricting. And it was certainly not open to Christian monotheism. Now, can we draw parallels to our country? Yes, I think we can. Of course, there are great dissimilarities, but there are some things Canadians will immediately identify with. Let me see if I can trace some of them. Canada, like Corinth, has always been dominated by a larger culture, whether it be Britain or it be our American neighbors to the south. A larger culture has always played a major role in our development. Second, our economy is vibrant enough to attract people and cultures and nations crowding to our shores looking for the lure of economic advancement. We are seeing the world coming to our shores and finding a home in our major cities, bringing diversity and cultural wealth to our shores. Thirdly, with the cultural diversity has come a growing religious diversity, and like Corinth, Canada has become quite proud of our religious tolerance and acceptance of a wide variety of spiritual expressions. Fourthly, while we have no spiritual temples devoted to temple prostitutes, Canada has become a nation in which diversity in sexual expression is not only tolerated— but openly promoted in schools, in the media, and in the arts. To insist on narrow expression of sex only within heterosexual marriage seems strange now to many and even offensive to some. Fifth, like Corinth, we also lack a clear moral center or a clear sense of a basic for ethics. And finally, there's a growing sense among those of us who are Christian that tolerance for those who insist that there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, this is fading. We sense a hostility to the truth claims of Christ. Now, in truth, we must not overplay this. Unlike Corinth, our rights as Christians are protected by law, and our presence in this culture is far more substantial than the Christians in Corinth could ever have dreamed of. But again, I'm not trying to point out a one-to-one similarity between us and them, only that the culture of that ancient city looks a lot less foreign to us than we might expect. We would think that what the Apostle Paul said to that church would be highly relevant to Christians in Canada today, without even trying too hard. But let's move forward. How did the Christian church start there? And what brought the saving news of a Jewish Messiah crucified on a Roman cross in Jerusalem to that ancient city? And what would have enticed anyone to listen, believe, and form a church? And for the background, we need to go to the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas have been commissioned by the church in Antioch, and they've set out to evangelize and plant churches in what was then called Cilicia, Lyconia, and Galatia, and what is now the eastern portion of Turkey. They came back reporting their successes and all that God had done in opening up a door to the evangelization of Gentiles. And then after some time, Paul and Barnabas decide to go back to the churches they had planted and visit them again to see how they were doing. Now, because of a disagreement between them, Paul pairs up with Silas, revisiting the churches he had begun, and then something amazing happens. Act 16 simply says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel in Asia, that is, western Turkey, and one night Paul had a vision. A man of Macedonia, that is, a man from Greece, came to him in a vision and said, "'Come and help us.'" And Paul concluded rightly that this was a vision from God, and he would make preparations to go to Greece. And that takes Paul to a new part of the world, Greece. And he preaches the gospel and plants churches in places like Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. He even preaches in Athens. All these are Greek cities. And then in Acts 18, 1 to 4, we hear what happens next. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now we do know that Paul arrived in Corinth in the year AD 50. He came as the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was an exceptionally brilliant and educated Jewish rabbi, probably among the elite 1% in scholarly training. As a young man, he was a violent man. His task was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, as we know, he met Jesus on the road of the Syrian city of Damascus, and he was transformed. The man who once persecuted the church was now preaching faith in Jesus. And in A.D. 50, he arrives in Corinth as a missionary. He begins by making tents. That's his profession. With all the tourists constantly coming to the city, that was probably a pretty lucrative business. And that's how he survives, but that's not why he's there. He's there to preach about Jesus and to begin a church. And so he meets two Jewish believers from Rome, preaches in the local synagogue, notices that there are a number of Gentiles that are interested also in the God of Israel, and he waits for fellow missionaries to arrive and help. Well, let's keep reading the account in Acts. It says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So, for a year and a half, Paul preached and built a church. He would have taught the basics of the Christian faith, how to live the Christian faith, and he would have appointed leaders, and then he left to go do the same thing in another city. And sometime later, maybe about two years later, while Paul was working in the city of Ephesus, he got a message that the city of the church in Corinth was racked with problems there were deep divisions in the church. They mistrusted their leaders. Christians were suing other Christians in a court of law. There were a number of cases of sexual immorality. Yeah, they were acting like Corinthian girls. They were struggling with divorce and remarriage. They argued about whether or not they had the freedom to participate in religious rituals to gods and goddesses. They had dispute about gender. Are the roles attached to being men and women to be solid or thought of as uh, discretionary? The Lord's supper had degenerated into a drunken feast. Some didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. It seemed like the wheels were coming off. The church had lost her moorings and was wandering about in a fog and had forgotten her mission to reach the pagan city of Corinth. Indeed, they were becoming like the pagans in the city rather than providing an alternative. And again, there are great differences between the Corinthian church and the church in Canada. But one of the greatest challenges Canadian churches face is our propensity to adopt the culture of our nation rather than developing a unique Christian culture as an alternative to this world and in obedience to Christ. And so in the next four weeks, I want to trace God's word to a church living in a pagan culture, a church that feels tempted to become more and more like the world rather than like the people of God. And we will see God's solution to that problem.
0: John, as you were speaking today, one of the things that came to my mind was the whole idea of culture. And I remember working with a gentleman who once told me we should really be countercultural as the church. How do you speak into that? How do we become countercultural to the world?
1: Yeah, culture itself needs some definition. I mean, in some ways, we speak the language of our culture. We dress like our culture. In many ways, we eat foods that are common among us, and you know, those kind of things are all part of the day-to-day makeup of our lives. But I think what we normally mean when we talk like that, Ben, is that there ought to be something about our ethic and our value base, uh, the way that we love each other, all those kind of things, that reflect the image of Christ, rather than the way in which they do it in either in Corinth or in Canada, right? So the the reality is that the the Corinthian experience will teach us a great deal of how that church went wrong and where we go wrong as well. And I think one of the telling things happens later in that book, especially on the issue of meat sacrifice to idols, where Christians can exercise freedom and where they are bound by the Word of God to act contrary to that culture. We have so much to learn about that.
0: Well, it appears from the very first message that we'll have a lot to reflect on and learn from the challenges and issues that plagued the Corinthian church. Lessons that we can also apply as we live in the midst of our own pagan culture. Like the Corinthian Christians, we too face the challenge of being in the world, but not of it. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues in his series in 1 Corinthians. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. psalms of the seasons our 2020 back to the bible canada calendar reminds us of many things it reminds us of the beauty and magnificence of creation and the beauty of god's word it provides a uniquely designed bible reading plan by dr neufeld and there's no better way to start the new year than a commitment to read god's word cover to cover Now the calendar is limited, so it's only available as quantities last. So reach out today to ensure you get your copy of Psalms of the Seasons. This calendar is filled with encouragement, beautiful pictures, the Bible reading guide, and it's yours for free while supplies last. So to request your copy and perhaps consider a financial gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to order your calendar today.